tuned into Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. This is episode one for January of 2016. We're just starting out. For those of you who don't know us, my name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this inaugural edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we're going to be talking about the Doctor Who Christmas episode that aired on the BBC and the expanse on sci-fi, along with a few other topics of interest. Right. And this is our first foray into this particular territory. Den of Geek was very kind and we're very honored to be doing this podcast for them, a general sci-fi podcast that seeks to do what other podcasts maybe don't really do. And that is focus only in on two shows. Dave picks one, I pick one. And these are going to be shows that maybe don't always get the fan recognition, or if they do, there's some new angle that we want to tackle it with. And that's certainly going to be the case for Doctor Who, as as Dave talks about, not only the Christmas episode, but just season nine impressions. And then I'm going to be talking about The Expanse, which is a new show, great new show. It's funny, though, that show has a polarized audience as well. Some people really love it, and some people are still wondering what's so great about it. But Yeah, and we're barely five episodes in. <laughs> that's right. Uh, one show we won't be talking about, though, is Walking Dead. I mean, like Mike said, we don't want to talk about the mega shows. And, and, and of course, some people would argue that, well, Doctor Who? Come on. <laughs> well, I think it's partly that if you want to draw attention to something specific, and that's what this podcast is really going to be doing. And that's why it's called Sci-Fi Fidelity. We're kind of turning up the volume on some shows that maybe aren't getting specific attention or maybe just want to highlight something about that. And there are other podcasts out there, including right here on Den of Geek for shows like The Walking Dead. So this is going to be more of a general touching. We hope you enjoy it because we're going to not only have the two different chosen topics of the month, but we're also going to have an interview with someone from one of the two shows that we're talking about. And this week, we're actually going to be talking to Dominique Tipper from The Expanse. Very happy to be sharing that with you. And then the other thing, Dave, we're doing is is also adding a topic of interest that will be something that might be related to science fiction television specifically or just television watching. And today's topic for that is actually going to be binge watching and how that affects the way we watch television. Yeah. But even before we go further, Mike, who are we, by the way? So, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, some people listening probably know us. Uh, you know, Mike and I are high school teachers, English teachers. Mike's a media specialist. Uh, I was thinking about how long we've been working together at our job. Gosh, at least 10 years together, right? Since 98. Wow. And we've been podcasting together. It'll be four years this June. And some of you may have heard us on Liberate a Continuum podcast. Uh, we're doing some shows for Golden Spiral Media. We did an extant podcast. Uh, we're currently doing the Sandbox and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast. Uh, we did a Childhood's End miniseries. Yeah, and we're just going all over the place in terms of finding shows that we like. This is going to be our first general sci-fi podcast, but... Really, if Continuum hadn't come around, not only would we not be podcasting, we wouldn't be working for Den of Geek. That's really what opened the door for us in many ways. And we're hoping that those of you who are joining us from that will definitely enjoy this more general approach. But also, if you're new to Mike and Dave and the podcast experience that we deliver, hopefully you'll enjoy the way we approach it because we do definitely take an analytic look but we also are rabid sci-fi fans, and we hope that that enthusiasm comes across on the podcast and is infectious. But 
Today, we're actually going to start off by mentioning that we are spoiling the shows that we're talking about to a certain degree. And so we always want to start off our podcast with the time codes in case you want to skip around. So if you want to skip over Doctor Who, go straight to The Expanse or skip over The Expanse and go to the interview or whichever portions you want to listen to, then certainly we will provide that for you. So now for those who need to avoid the spoilers by skipping certain segments, here are the time codes for today's topics. Doctor Who. Directly after this announcement. The Expense. 2708. Interview segment. 4754. Binge watching discussion. 6019. All right. Well, now that everybody's got that straight, Mike, why don't we jump right in with Doctor Who? And, and obviously, the main focus is the Christmas episode for 2015. But we'd be remiss if we didn't just give Series 9 quick look and one of the things that i really loved about series nine was the return to the multi-part storytelling which was certainly a staple of classic doctor who and some of those even had as many as 12 parts here the season opened with four two-part serials there was one standalone and then series nine ended up with a three-part finale which i really enjoyed i mean it's like having a lot of mini movies Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's certainly for someone like me who's trying to catch up on Doctor Who. And I'll freely admit that I am not up to date on Doctor Who, but I am enthusiastic about the show. But what makes it difficult with such a large library is that you have these standalones that you almost want to be like, can I maybe skip some of those and just uh, watch the ones that are more serial based, the ones that I need to know in order to understand the mythology and what's going on. And so, yeah, I agree. I also prefer the multi episode storylines right and i think like any serialized show if you do jump in in the middle you can pick up a lot but one of the things that i think anybody that watched series nine understands is that capaldi's doctor and the stories in series nine and series eight before it featured a much darker tone than we saw out of matt smith and david tennant yeah well especially david tennant but yeah i didn't think it could get much darker than matt smith to be honest but yeah, Capaldi is really delivering that tone. Yeah, and I like it a lot. And, you know, some of the darker mood does stem from his relationship with Clara, which is complicated at best, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things in, in the Series 9 three-part finale, I think for me and for a lot of people, it, it sort of absolves Stephen Moffat of an otherwise uneven season. And I don't mean that in a detrimental way, because I, I do enjoy it. I, I did think all the stories were strong, but I think uneven is a fair assessment. The twist at the end might be one of the most clever of the reboot. And while I was convinced Clara was dead and would stay dead, the doctor ends up bringing her back only to heartbreakingly lose all memory of their time together. So it's like, there's always a catch. Yeah. And I like those kinds of twists where it's something that you didn't expect, and it's something that has huge consequences for bringing someone back to life, especially. Right. Now, Series 9, we're left with the Doctor having no memory of his time with Clara, and Clara is now with a shielder slash me, who's played by Maisie Williams, who we all know as Arya Stark in Game of Thrones, and they're traveling in their own stolen TARDIS, and they're taking the long way around the universe, though we do know that eventually Clara will have to go through her death scene eventually. 
How long that's going to take is anyone's guess. And that, and again, that's sort of prescient given yeah. what we get in the Christmas episode. Exactly. And I like these kinds of time travel stories. And that's probably why I'm not caught up on Doctor Who, because I'm a time travel fanatic. I will devour anything with time travel. Continuum, of course, being the biggest example. But I also do a podcast for 12 Monkeys. So I love time travel. But Doctor Who is sometimes time travel light. But here in the Series 9 three-part finale and in the Christmas episode, we do get a lot of timey-wimeyness. Yeah, and no more so than with River Song. But you can't help but think, is this some sort of a cop-out on Moffat's end to enable Jenna Coleman to return should she choose? Because we all know that she was going to opt out after Series 8 and then apparently had a change of heart and came back. And I certainly don't think she's leaving on bad terms. And I get wanting to distance yourself to a certain extent from Doctor Who, because it is such an iconic show. So cop out. I don't know if it is a cop out. It's a good one. Yes, it's a well orchestrated one. Yeah, because maybe Moffat's just like the rest of us and and just can't seem to let Clara Oswald go, which is understandable. Who can blame you? Jenna Coleman. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to talk about the Christmas episode primarily and and just a, a brief history. Russell T. Davies wrote the first four He shared writing credit with Moffat on 2009's The End of Time Part 1, and then Moffat's written all of them since. And of all of them, and I did get to rewatch them all because BBC America always runs them in their little marathon over the uh, Christmas holiday. I got to say 2010's A Christmas Carol starring Matt Smith has got to be my favorite, and it's obviously a spin on the iconic Dickens tale. It's not my favorite because we get to see Amy Pond in her equally iconic police outfit. Yes, although you could be forgiven if that is why you liked it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I just really like the way they they use that as the basis, but it's really a lot different. I don't know. I feel like the Doctor Who episode that we're going to talk about tonight got some negative feedback that I don't understand. Maybe you can explain it to me as someone who's seen all of it. Um, I did have to spoil myself somewhat on the story of River Song and how she came to be and everything like that. I I had seen her certainly in the, in my watching of season five, but I didn't know the full story, so I caught up on it for the purposes of this podcast. And I thought this was great this episode, but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm I'm not seeing the full picture. Well, again, I would certainly not characterize myself as a Doctor Who expert. I mean, I, I've watched them all. I'm up to date. I try to get back and watch as many of the classics as I can. But I don't necessarily rewatch each episode multiple times. So, you know, I have a, a good sense of who River is. And like you, I don't understand anything negative. This was a fun episode. And was titled The Husbands of River Song. So right away, uh, we're wondering, because again, well, wait a minute, isn't the doctor her husband? (laughs) Exactly. Did she ever have any others, given her circumstances? But apparently she did. Uh, Yes. Now, this one, as I said, written by Stephen Moffat, directed by Douglas McKinnon. And of course, Alex Kingston reprises her role as doctor or professor, River Song. And one of the things that immediately got me was that this essentially begins as a screwball comedy yeah centered on the fact that river song doesn't recognize the doctor primarily because he she assumes he's used up all his regeneration yeah she has that uh wallet full of the 12 faces that she thinks are all there ever will be yeah so we come off this dark 
series nine and we get this really light episode and it does get serious uh, about halfway through because we do witness the impact that he's had on river and her love for him and it gives us a look at the 12th doctor in a comedic role and hey who knew i thought that it was great from the standpoint is it wasn't really heavy with the christmas theme it just had the snow and he certainly arrived at christmas time but it really didn't focus solely on that so in that sense it was some episodic content rather than just a isolated storyline as many of the christmas episodes are right and and that's again that's something to like that they're not all christmas based some are some aren't but you mentioned trying to get up to speed on River Song. One of the things about River Song, she's a human time traveler who once had the ability to regenerate and she gave over some of this to the doctor. And one of the issues that, you know, you mentioned time travel that is kind of confounding is that her experiences with the doctor are nonlinear. But one of the interesting things, her real name is Melody Pond. She's the daughter of former companions, Rory and Amy Pond, and was conceived aboard the TARDIS. And because of this, she has certain Time Lord genetic traits because she was apparently conceived aboard the TARDIS in space. And I love that. Exactly. I, I just love that whole concept. <laughs> right. Stolen as a child by Madame Kavarian, raised by the silence to be used as a weapon against the doctor. Also turns out to be the doctor's wife. And she dies... <laughs> But, of course, she lives, saving the 10th Doctor in 2008, but has reappeared many times since. So we'll just leave it at that. She's certainly got a history, and and I guess we could do a podcast simply about River Song. <laughs> yeah, we certainly could. But one of the things I think that immediately strikes me, but though, about this episode is how do we view River Song? Because she's more in this episode than I've ever seen her before, at best, morally ambiguous. I mean, she's ready to steal She's ready to murder. Well, even the doctor seems to be taken aback by her personality in this one. Yeah. I mean, she's still that fiercely independent woman that we've grown to love since she first appeared in series four, but it's a little difficult to accept her willingness to murder. Now uh, she's using the time honored. If you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you? Yeah. Well, it does appear that, King Hydroflax is in that uh, Hitler vein. <laughs> yeah, no question. Another question I'm wondering, although I, I, I tend to think no, does she recognize the doctor earlier than she lets on? Well, I, I don't know. The first time around, I didn't think so. But the second time, I wasn't sure. Well, it's just that she has that complete look of shock when she finally realizes it. And it takes a good few seconds for her to put two and two together. So just from that standpoint, I think that... It didn't dawn on her until that point. Right. Now, we mentioned in the intro that it's possible we might see Clara Oswald again. And even though the doctor claims that this time, even though the doctor claims that the time he and River meet at the Singing Towers will be the last, the ending's left nebulous enough for us to hope that it's not the last time we've seen River's song. And, you know, again, first watch and even the second watch, I'm thinking that, well, She's going to die, but that's really not what he says. That's just the last time they'll be together again. Right. Well, I think it's an ending for Alex Kingston, don't you think? I think they're giving her closure to her character, and I thought it was a really good way to do it. They have 24 years 
to have this night together. So there's still plenty of time to hang out and enjoy each other's company. But I think it is a graceful exit for the character. Oh, please don't say that. Oh, I just <laughs> love her. She's, And that's one of the things that's, again, so great about her character is that she's age appropriate. Yes. And on the one hand, I, I can't believe I'm saying that because there was really never anything disturbing about the, the relationship she had with Matt Smith, you know, <laughs> yeah, or David Tennant. But obviously, she's the same age, roughly, as the 12th Doctor. And, you know, there's something about that that I think just makes their chemistry so much better. And that's not to say it wasn't good before with Matt Smith. Oh, no, I totally see what you're saying. Capaldi and Kingston are definitely a better match. Right. But as she says, well, you're the doctor. You're, you know, you always figure out something that, that but he seems kind of resigned that this is it. Yeah. So, well, she admits she loves him. Not that we didn't already know that. Acknowledges that not only does she know he doesn't love her back, but I guess what I just found fascinating was she says that she doesn't expect a man of his significance to love anyone. Well, I think this is one of the first times we really see it so succinctly put, and it's really kind of in your face the way she describes the doctor's personality and how he can't really love anyone to the degree that they love him back. So he is like a cosmic object in that sense. Yeah. Or is he just afraid? Or yeah, it could be something that she's making it too grandiose. Yeah. So, all right, well, why don't we just kind of go through the episode real quickly? You know, opening scene, we're on a human colony, Christmas Day, 5343, snowing, camera pans, ends up on the TARDIS with the sign, Carol Singers will be criticized. We immediately know (laughs) this is different. I never know, like, the doctor just shows up and he never questions why he shows up, where he shows up, or when. So he just takes it all in stride. The guy knocks on the TARDIS. The doctor appears with antlers. <laughs> Which is a scene we've seen in the previews leading up to the episode a number of times. But now we had the context. Yeah. So it's just a very comedic way of tying in the Christmas theme very briefly before it goes completely off into a different <laughs> different angle. But I do love the fact that the guy is looking for a surgeon and the doctor just says, ah, close enough. <laughs> Exactly. Although he pretty quickly finds out that River is at the heart of this situation. And he does seem a bit flummoxed that River has a husband other than him. Yes, and that he has been bamboozled into a situation with a millions and millions of people in an audience of sorts, which will force him to do a surgery that he's not qualified to do. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. It's the doctor. It's- Exactly. And I mean, look, she just wants him to cut her husband's head off. How hard can that be? <laughs> exactly. Get to the most valuable diamond in the universe. And I love her line. Well, an archaeologist is just a thief with patience. <laughs> exactly right. I'll kill the lights. You kill the patient. <laughs> and, you know, we find out she has a sonic trowel, which <laughs> he finds somewhat amusing, as did we. Well, I'm I think sure. they were actually poking fun at the fact that people don't really care for the sonic sunglasses. Right. So he's saying, Sonic Trial, that's silly. Yeah. And I'm one, I love the Sonic sunglasses. Okay. <laughs> it's a TV show. It's fun. So what? <laughs> well, the king removes his own head. Turns out he's a cyborg. And then they place his head in a leather bag. And one of the first things you see as she empties the bag to make room is 
the red fez that, of course, Matt Smith's character wore. Yeah, and I love the fact that he inserts that line, I haven't laughed in a long time, as they have that interaction together, because, of course, it has been a very dark Series 9, so it's nice to see him having fun here. Yeah. They land in the snow, and, of course, listen as the head calls from inside the bag, continuing that whole screwball comedy motif, which, again, I really liked. Well, it turns out she has yet another husband, Ramon, but she wiped his memory because he was getting annoying. <laughs> yeah, only River Song could get away with that. It's like she talks a good game about the doctor not being able to love anyone, and he's too grand for, you know. But the thing is, she's kind of beyond their regular scope as well, and she exhibits that with Ramon. Right. Well, if we have any question about her and her self-esteem the fact that her code name for the doctor is damsel as in damsel in distress, as in she's the one that comes and saves him. <laughs> I think she's okay on that end. Yeah. And she's had at this point enough experience with, well, I don't know. Has she had enough experience with the doctor at this point to make that call? Um, I, don't, I don't know how many times she's seen the doctor at this point in her life, in her timeline. Right. Uh, so, you know, the fact that we've seen her in, I don't know what, nine, 10, 11 episodes, we assume that she's been in contact with him a lot more. We certainly know she's been in contact with his TARDIS a lot more. She's got her own key, which, which we did know. Yeah. And she's stolen it many times. And she says she gets it back without him noticing that while she may be gone for days, weeks, months, years to him, it's only a few seconds. And that makes sense. <laughs> Time travel, man. Yeah, and I like that the river has that ability. But she also gives the doctor a rare opportunity, since she does not believe that it's is actually the doctor. Oh, and this is awesome. To exhibit his own amazement at the fact that the TARDIS is bigger on the inside. And the doctor really was happy to actually be able to do that the correct way i think he said or something like that yeah and he just revels in this opportunity i think for the viewers we know he's mocking all those <laughs> who have come before yeah very well done yeah all right well in a further role reversal river leads the doctor out of the confusion in the tardis when hydroflax's body and head come into close proximity and then suddenly we're in the lobby of this fancy hotel and this some sort of alien being Dr. Song, your table is ready. And we do learn that she's 200 years old now. So her, her lifespan, I think she even alludes to this, her lifespan has been uh, elongated, or she says an augmented lifespan. Yeah, by being born on the TARDIS, we assume, right? Right. But one of the other special aspects of this restaurant, in her words, this is where genocide comes to kick back and relax. Yeah, the whole ship is filled with... Bad guys. Genocide <laughs> bad guys, including the, the uh, staff. <laughs> right now. Now, one of the aspects of River that we have seen before is, is of course, her diary. And, you know, spoilers. <laughs> exactly. One, one of the most famous lines. And she's got it with her at dinner. He asks about it. And then the episode begins to grow a bit more serious. She tells him that the man who gave it to her is not special, but useful. And he seems a bit crestfallen, as did I when she said that. I'm like, that was not very nice. I think to a certain extent, River is playing it defensive. She is characterizing him this way because she's got her emotional walls up. She has to in order to not constantly be bombarded by her feelings for the man. So she characterizes him the way others might see him. But I, I don't think it's the real way she sees him. Yeah. 
Well, she sells the head slash diamond, and uh, after she does that, a twist occurs when the waiter who knows River knows she's married to the doctor, steps forward, reveals that her diary will lead her to the doctor, and then starts reading from the diary. And now we get to it as she's questioned about his location. And she's told, you're the woman he loves and tells him that the doctor does not and has never loved her, admits she loves him, but he doesn't love her back. And then I love that. Again, when you love the doctor, it's like loving the stars themselves. Yeah, that whole speech was just great, especially because she's saying he would never be here. I'm not. This is not an important enough event for him to show up. And that's when she realizes, basically because of noticing that they're near the planet Derillium, which has figured so prominently in their history together, and she knows about it, that this is him standing right here next to her. (laughs) Yeah. And from her diary, she knows that this is where, at first I thought where she'll die, but this is apparently the last time they will spend together. So again, it is still somewhat nebulous. But then she realizes that the doctor kept canceling their dinners at this restaurant. And we understand why. I mean, it's certainly not unlike the Christmas episode where the girl that, that I guess the Scrooge character loves is encased in ice and he brings her out once a year on Christmas Eve because he, he knows she only has, I think it's like five or six days left of life and he's trying to spread it out. Hell yeah, that's very similar. <laughs> and savor it. So they finally dine, and it's really a, a bittersweet moment. The doctor even tries noticing how she looks, which, again, is something he never would notice. Yeah, exactly, and she knows it. <laughs> I also like the touch uh, with the time travel, where he funds the restaurant with the diamond by giving it to one of the rescue workers. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> that was a nice touch. Right, and she realizes that This is the final evening they spend together, and I guess we're left to wonder whether or not that ends up being accurate or not. And I'm guessing no. Unlike you, I will be horrified if this is it for (laughs) Alex Kingston. Well, here's the thing. She has asked him, how long are the nights on Derillium? They're 24 years. I mean, is that not the perfect way for them to get all the time they need off screen? We don't get to see it. But I think this is a nice little ending for them that she is appreciative of. And therefore, that's what we have to be. Say it ain't so, Mike. (laughs) But what do I what do I know? Seriously? Well, what do any of us know? So, uh, all right. Well, anyway, speaking of what any of us know, why don't we take a look at a new show that I thought was a little slow developing, but on my rewatch, I don't think so anymore. And, And I'm really digging it. The Expanse. Yeah, and those of you who maybe skipped over the Doctor Who segment of our episode, welcome. We're talking about The Expanse here. And what a great show. I, I have the feeling that Dave and I are going to accurately represent the audience to a certain extent because I just love it on so many levels. And yet I see how the pacing of this show is a little bit slow and might be off putting for some. But there's been people comparing it to Battlestar Galactica favorably. And there's a lot unique about the show that I think will recommend it to our listeners. And if I could just go over some of the main points as an enticement, 
we've got this return to space drama, which, of course, Sci-Fi has been doing. Sci-Fi Network is the one that airs The Expanse, and they have done Dark Matter. They've done Killjoys. Those shows are both only one season old. But this one has a different take on it. They don't have the gadgets. They don't have the light speed travel. It's the 23rd century, and humanity has expanded, but only within their solar system. We've got Earth and Luna as one unit. We've got Mars as a completely separate political unit. And then you've got the asteroid belt and the Outer Planets Alliance, which have strained relations because Earth and Mars pretty much own everything, and they're being exploited for their resources. So you've got Earth being this wealthy planet ruled by the UN, has unlimited access to water and air, unlike some of the other folks in in space. You've got Mars as this independent militaristic planet with its Mars Congressional Republic Navy. And then you've got the OPA, which is seen by some as a terrorist organization, but it's the Outer Planets Alliance that is consisting of the moons of Jupiter, like Ganymede and Callisto and Phoebe and around Saturn. And of course, the asteroid belt itself, which uh, has its main home in Ceres, which is the largest asteroid in the belt. So that's the setting that we join this. And just that alone for me just says, okay, I'm in. <laughs> right, because we are not in a galaxy far, far away. Exactly right. Right. I don't want to say that there's nothing we see in the first five episodes that couldn't actually take place, but there kind of isn't really. <laughs> yeah. And it's very unique. It does set up some political machinations, which we see in other shows. You've got Game of Thrones. You've got Vikings. You've got other shows that play around with the politics of their day. But here it's just very well done. I think there's still some strides to make in that score, especially with Earth, which has been kind of in the background, strangely enough, considering it's the home planet. But it is a powder keg ready to blow already. But when the opening sequence happens in this series where an ice miner, which is hauling big chunks of ice from the rings of Saturn all the way to the belt, which, remember, has no air and water of its own. So they have to get it from places like Saturn. This ship, the Canterbury, a ramshackle ship, it's falling apart. Probably one of the worst ships that are out there in space is nuked from stealth while they're attempting a rescue on a distant asteroid. And we're like, what? No one knows why it happened. Why so severe? Why from stealth? And the only conclusion they can draw is that it must be the militaristic Mars based on the tech that they find and based on the fact that stealth technology was involved, which is a Mars thing. Right. And for those of you that may not know that when you melt ice, you get water. (laughs) That's right. So definitely something that is a precious, precious resource. It's not just the metals that are in the asteroids that are important to Earth. It's the water that's important to those out in space. Right, and as you said, the asteroid belt is providing the raw materials, and it really is almost a slave class, but they are so dependent on water and air, and we get a good sense of that in the episode. So, So it really does become important for a ship like the Canterbury to be able to deliver its ice on time. And it's easy to place a stranglehold on those types of resources when you're so dependent on them. So we're following three different storylines in this series. We've got those on board the Canterbury, which is definitely my favorite aspect of the show. When the Canterbury is blown up, we lose a lot of those characters, but we have four people left over that are 
trying to figure out what happened. And that's Holden, who is, I guess you could call him the main character. He's acting XO of the small band of uh, survivors. You've got Amos, who is a mechanic. You've got Shed, the doctor, who is only around for the first few episodes. Yeah, because he loses his head over the whole situation. (laughs) Oh, my. But uh, actually, I kind of was just getting to like his character in his unlikable way when he was removed from the equation. Uh, But two of my favorite characters are Alex, the pilot, and Naomi, the engineer, who's only the, the only female character on the crew there. And they're just trying to figure out from their disparate points of view what happened. There's some suspicions among them. It's a really great dynamic that that crew has. So the other piece of it that I think I was a little bit critical of at first in going too slowly, but now I think is just brilliantly done and very subtle is the plot line that's going on on series. And that's with detective Miller and his partner Havelock. They've been tasked with finding the daughter of an influential shareholder whose name is Julie Mao. And it's kind of a job that they're just doing as a favor. In fact, they call it a kidnap job because the parents want their kid back. So it's not a very glamorous task that Miller is, is being given. Right. And at first he thinks it's a punishment. Right. He says, okay, I'll do it. But what's weird is that when the Canterbury is blown up and Holden sees that it might be the Martians that have done it. And he, in order to save their skins, broadcasts this fact to the entire, you know, solar system, basically. It really sets this powder keg in motion where it's, it might blow where the belters are saying, remember the can't, it becomes a battle cry for them. And so Miller actually has to deal with the security situation on series rather than dealing with his little task. In fact, I think the, doesn't his captain even, Tell him, forget about that. It's not important anymore. Yeah. But he thinks they're all tied in together. And this is what's so brilliant is that the storylines seem so different. And actually, they all are interrelated. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, that, you know, he and Havelock are detectives. They work for Star Helix Security, which is an Earth corporation. Right. But Miller is a belter himself. Yeah. Whereas Havelock is an Earther. So he definitely has a lot more savviness with the society. And in fact, he could be considered corrupt himself. It's kind of a corrupt system that they've got going and it just works. It's known to be the way it is where you have payoffs and organized crime and things like that. So it's all just taken in stride. But when the riots start happening with regard to what's happened with Mars blowing up a ship unprovoked that had water on it, no less, which is extremely important, then I just love how that's the impetus for all the conflict that this show centers around. Yeah, no question. So the away team to. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To answer the distress call are the people that we are left with in the series. So we've got the four characters I mentioned earlier. Five, actually, including Shed, the doctor. And 
they actually witness the destruction of their ship and have to save themselves by broadcasting to the solar system, like I said, which actually brings them to the attention of a Mars Navy ship. Now, I guess they were thinking that the Navy ship was coming to finish the job. That's what I think. And this is, of course, the second vessel that they have been on because they started on the Canterbury. Now they're on the Canterbury shuttle. I believe it's called Night. They are on the night, which is falling apart around them. They barely have enough to hold it together until the Martians pick them up. So I love all the different things that they do with regard to repairing the comms array. They have to figure out how to get oxygen to each other. And that's a very dramatic scene where where they're having to share their breathers and things like that. Some great, great tension that's very realistic. I mean, space is a dangerous place. And this show really communicates that very well. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and uh, aboard the Doniger, they, they get interrogated and immediately Naomi's background is called into question because she is so overqualified yeah. for basically working on an ice hauler. She's not even the pilot of the ice hauler. Right. And she's one of the few belters among the survivors as well, because I believe you got a couple of earthers there and, and Alex is a Martian himself. So, yeah, the Doniger is the flagship of the Mars Congressional Republic Navy. So it's much more luxurious than they're used to. And in fact, in episode five that just aired where they're on the shuttle of the Doniger, even that (laughs) is like the lap of luxury. But here they get the Doniger blown up too. And who knows why? Just because they're on the ship. Is that why these six small stealthy ships, which shouldn't even be able to avoid the missiles that the Doniger sends towards them, much less destroy the Doniger themselves as small as they are. And yet that's exactly what happens. And the mystery just heightens more and more as these ships that shouldn't exist are able to do what they do. Right. And we do get a little bit of the BSG feel here, certainly through the uniforms. But then as the captain of the Doniger points out, she is in fact the only one that has ever seen battle outside of simulations yet they have this confidence factor i almost call it the titanic effect that we're basically unsinkable exactly i mean they're like if this were the star trek universe the martians would be the klingons very disciplined or maybe the vulcans who knows (laughs) but uh yeah the fact that they just can't even believe that they're being scuttled basically they're being destroyed and the only survivors are again the canterbury crew they did actually get their interrogator to come along with them and and god bless him as as harsh as he was especially getting those suspicions roused up about naomi and how how is she so skilled she must be a member of the opa you know even with all that suspicion he did actually give over control of the luxurious shuttle to his own prisoners because he saw that he was dying probably Right. But Mike, what were those little round balls that he was? Oh, the little pills ingesting is that that gave him the ability. Was that like his built in lie detector? uh, Yeah. A la Kira Cameron. Yeah, I think it was heightening his senses so that he could tell if they were telling the truth or or any little hint that they might give him. He would be able to tell just by their body language. But yeah, what a great storyline. I can't wait to see where they end up. They've just made contact with Fred Johnson, who we're first introduced to as 
a member of uh, Tycho Station who was building this massive ship for, I think it was the Mormons. <laughs> yes, the Latter-day Saints. <laughs> and they're building this ship that's going to go outside the solar system for the first time, and I can't wait to see where that's headed. But what's weird is that the same character also is apparently trying to help the Canterbury crew as some member of the OPA or some kind of person who's helping the OPA. And yet we get a flashback that shows him as the butcher of Anderson station from when he was a Colonel in the earth Navy. So this character is all over the map. And I just love that he's got so many facets and you're wondering which one's the real one. (laughs) Can they trust him? Right. You'll love it. He, He basically is told you're fired. Well, you know, you can fire me, but one day the ship will be out in space and it might not be as dependable as you would want. That's right. Well, stay on the job until you hear from me. Right. So waiting to see what happens with that. And Miller uh, on series is our other subplot, which I think is the one that does suffer from some slow pacing at times. But I've come to appreciate the way that the facts that Miller discovers about his kidnap job, trying to find Julie Mao, how it's doled out, especially from the standpoint of each piece that he gets, even though it's very slow and it's very methodical and you have to keep up. There's no handholding in the show. You have to figure it out for yourself what's going on, especially when he's speaking the Creole language of the Belters. He does it all non-verbally. Like in episode five, for example, he finds a key detail from some clues that he got where he never speaks of it. He never talks about it. We just see it. He figures it out. We see the results of what he figured out. So I just really like how this Miller character is being portrayed as someone who is dedicated to the job and is tenacious when he's got a theory about something. Yeah. And detective work is often long and protracted. So, you know, that would certainly follow. I mean, we got, 10 episodes. Yeah. And the the main thing that I'm wondering about Miller is he's gaining a respect for Julie Mao, even as he's told to give up the case, because he sees that she was into martial arts. She could handle her own against people who would harass her on the station. She has a racing ship that she, I guess, got from her rich parents, but still she can handle herself in space. Yeah, but is that kind of short-sighted on his part? I mean, that's why he has respect for her? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is it respect, or does he have himself a little crush? (laughs) What do you think? Well, I I guess the latter, but... Well, especially with things that happen in episode five specifically, he keeps a picture of her in a very suggestive way, to me anyway, that says he's kind of falling for her a little bit and really is going to uh, dedicate himself to the cause more than just out of... Uh, dedication to his profession. <laughs> well, and that's one of the beauties of his character. His uh, he is that kind of anti-heroish type. The uh, Han Solo, Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly. I mean, the guy's taking bribes for goodness' sakes. Yeah, and his really redeeming moment in episode one, I think, is when he finds out that someone in the corrupt society of the Belt is not replacing air filters in a place where kids are involved and he's ready to space the guy responsible because when you mess with air or water, that's just completely taboo. And Miller is like the moral authority in that sense. So we really get an idea that this guy has things that are important to him and it's life and death, but everything else is kind of a gray area that, that he's willing to work with. 
All right. Well, speaking of moral authorities and gray areas, what about Christiane on Earth? Oh, my God. Yes. Well, first of all, being played by Shorey Agdashlu, it doesn't hurt because <laughs> that lady has that distinctive low voice that we've seen in 24, among other shows. And she's just awesome as Christian. Now, of course, she is the assistant to the undersecretary of the United Nations. So on the surface, she's not a very important person. But clearly, she's got some kind of power that even her superiors wonder how she's able to do all this stuff. And Well, doesn't somebody say she's two heartbeats away from... Yeah, the throne or two yeah. heartbeats away from from definitely being in power and she's not above ruthless measures. She's shown torturing a belter simply by subjecting him to earth gravity, which is a great scene at the, at the beginning of the series, but she's a family woman. She appears to see the bigger picture with Mars. She doesn't leap to conclusions that Mars is involved in the Canterbury's destruction. She sees that it's a frame up job, but her absence from episode five specifically puts that all on hold. So I'm not sure where we're headed with her character. She's very disconnected from the rest of the plot. I think she has the potential to be a great character that we'll really enjoy. But to be honest, the earth part of this plot is the most understated in the series so far. Right. And we do have a lot of questions. First and foremost, clearly somebody's trying to start a war between Mars and earth but the question is who? And obviously the OPA seems to be the obvious culprit, but something tells me it's a fourth party. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case because everyone's trying to blame each other and we don't really know enough. I mean, that's what's so great about the first half because it really is the first half that we've had so far. It's a 10 episode season. We've got the Julie Mao aspect of it, which Miller is convinced is part of it somehow. Not sure how that could possibly be true. We've got people sneaking government data that she's dealing with. We've got, and one thing we forgot to mention at the very beginning of the series, Julie Mao is shown in a ship where she's kind of the only one left, the Scopuli, which is the ship that needed rescuing. And there's some weird amorphous blob with people parts coming out of it attached to the engine of the Scopuli. And it's this weird, almost supernatural looking thing. So what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah. They've thrown it out there that Naomi may be an OPA sleeper agent. Yeah. Who can we trust? Can we trust Naomi? Can we trust Fred Johnson? Can we trust the OPA in general? <laughs> I'm not sure I'd trust anybody that's got Butcher attached to his name. Yeah. I mean, right now the Martians are coming out looking the best with their store of coffee aboard that Holden finally gets a hold of seeking the perfect cup of coffee. But I think what's great about this series and why people should watch it. First of all, the use of gravity is so awesome. You've got the flip and burn in the opening episode where they have to slow the ship down to perform the rescue. And it's realistically portrayed as being heavy on the G's and it can actually be harmful to people. You've got the zero G sex. You've got the, bird floating in the low G of series in the opening episode. You've got the belter being tortured by gravity by Christian. I mean, gravity is pretty much its own character in the series. And I think it's just brilliantly, brilliantly done. Right. Even the fact that it makes belters taller, lankier than earthers. Yeah. And they've portrayed this very realistically. Of course, they've picked taller 
leaner characters to play Belters, such as Dominique Tipper, who plays Naomi, but just all kinds of ways where this show takes out assumed technology like hyperspace, force fields. You don't have matter transportation. You can't beam someone down to the planet. But really, it's a political show. I mean, it's a conspiracy show. It's a thriller. It's a mystery that happens to take place in space. And I think it's just very compelling in that sense. So the main criticism I think that has been leveled at the show is with its pacing, but I think it's got a great puzzle to solve. You're only getting little pieces at a time. It does not insult the intelligence of the audience. And I really, really appreciate that. Yes, I agree. But I think one of the main people that is really making my enjoyment of the show, what it is, is the character of Naomi, played by Dominique Tipper, who's a relative newcomer to television. But I have to say, she's quickly becoming my uh, favorite character the way that Luvia Peterson was in Continuum as the rough-and-tumble Garza. And Naomi is a very similar character (laughs) to that. So let me introduce Dominique Tipper, who plays Naomi Nagata, the engineer on board the Canterbury. Although she hasn't done a whole lot of TV yet, you should definitely do yourself a favor and go to YouTube, type in Dominique Tipper. You'll see some great examples of her previous work in music and dance there. And in fact, we asked Dominique about that in our interview with her. We were honored to speak with her as our first interviewee. So let's listen back to the chat that Dave and I had with Miss Dominique Tipper just before the Christmas holiday. And uh, let's dive right into it, shall we? Excellent. First of all, I have to say, and this I don't think I'm alone in this, Naomi is definitely my favorite character on this series so far. <laughs> and I think that's going to be Thank a very you. common thing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Talking about her as a character, though, we noticed that she is being billed as a belter, and she's overcome some rough times. She has. Is the show going to play around with that a little bit? A mysterious past for your character, perhaps? I think it's going to be played on a lot, definitely through series one it is. And I just think there's always the idea or the kind of essence that Naomi's hiding something. And so it's great to play with for me as the actor, but I also think for the audience, everyone's always going to be wondering what side she's on. And I think it's a really kind of cool thing to have in that dynamic of that group. So, yeah, it will definitely probably continually be played upon but I can't give you a clue as to what side she actually is on. (laughs) (laughs) Now, she is the only female on the crew. What's that like for her character? It's funny, I was thinking about this today, and I think what's interesting about Naomi, and, and mostly her and Holton's relationship, is that the kind of more emotional side of someone is normally connected with their more feminine side. And I think what's interesting about Naomi and Holden is that he is emotional, like he acts off impulses, he very much is a spur-of-the-moment guy, and she's very logical. And so I kind of love the dynamic between them where you have the female being the more logical person and making um, decisions that are a lot more based on the well-being of everyone rather than being emotional. And I, I love that essence of her character and that side that because she's female, she hasn't just been written as an, a very emotional role if that makes sense Mm -hmm. but in fact it's Holden so it's interesting in that way for the character and what's nice is that she's probably the most qualified between 
in that group to be in charge or be the leader. And I, I love that it plays on that as well, where you've got this woman in with a group of guys and she clearly makes the best suggestions and, and stuff, but it's kind of still still ignored. <laughs> right. I mean, one of the great lines is when she is trying to take charge and nobody's doing anything and she says, like, what does everybody need? Need a back rub? It's like one of my favorites. As soon as I read that in the script, I was like, yes. And I love that they kind of get all kind of amused with it and are like, oh, yeah, shit, we should be doing something. So yeah. I just, I like that there's no, for Naomi, there's no, it's kind of, there is an agenda for her, I feel. She's like, she is just going about her life the way she knows. And I don't think she's really phased by the fact that there's no other women there, you know? I think she sees the yeah. guys as equals, which is what I love about her, and I love the character. Right. Right. Now, you, you just mentioned equals. On the Canterbury, you've got Earthers like Holden, Martians like Alex, Belters like yourself. But you guys don't seem to have as much trouble mixing as Havelock does on series. Are, are there any planetary racial tensions among the crew that we just haven't seen yet? Well, I think with the Canterbury, there's very much the sense that they've all been together for quite a while so I just get the impression that you know for me it was always like we've all been in this for ages so if there ever was anything I feel like maybe everyone's over that and everyone's ice hauling so no one's better than anyone on that ship you know it's like everyone's there to do that job so I just think when it comes to being on series and being on the asteroid belt it's very much there is more of a division between the people it's very much more clear where they're from and where they're not from. And I think when you're just, like, with us, lot, when you're just all on the ship together, everyone's running away from something, everyone's got something to hide. So them being from different parts of the solar system is probably the least thing that defines them, if that makes sense. They're all kind of hiding something. So I don't think it matters as much on the ship as it does, say, on series. That makes sense. One thing I really like also about her character is the fact that you are this engineer pulling off amazing MacGyver-like improvisational repair skills, <laughs> yeah. especially with, uh, you know, a notebook and a, and a welding gun. Uh, are we going to see a lot of that type of stuff from her? Yeah, I think what's kind of gangster about Naomi is that she's self-taught, so this is not a girl that's, you know, been privileged and has gone to school and and been put through engineer school. She's done tutorials online. Like, she taught herself how to be an engineer. So, for me, it was very much a means to escape from whatever she's running from. And it was it was a way of her being distracted from whatever else was going on in her life at that time, if that makes sense. You know, very much like, for instance, a single mom that's got a few kids and... And, and wants to better her life and so puts herself through school. Like, that's the way I see Naomi. Like, she's taught herself how to be an engineer. So she's not entirely by the book, but she's, she's also exceptional by the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. So she can do those little improvisational things that maybe no one else can. Maybe someone that's been to the school doesn't have that skill set of being like a little bit of a rebel and going, let's just try this. So I think you... There is definitely, through the first season, a lot of Naomi using that kind of side of her knowledge of engineering, which I think is entirely her own. 
Now, at this point, you don't have any scenes with Thomas Jane or Shore Agdush Lu. Do you know if that's going to change? And I'm always curious, did you see the show for the first time along with the fans? You know, the completed uh, edit? Um, yes, I actually, so, okay, the first bit of your question, um, the storylines definitely intertwine. I don't want to tell you too much because it will give it away, but you will see us all together at some point, maybe not all in the same room, but it's like Game of Thrones, like the storylines kind of cross over naturally. Regarding seeing the episode for the first time, the first time I saw it finished was at um, Comic-Con. So I watched it backstage while everyone out front watched it. And it made me nervous to go on stage. Me and Wes had seen it for the first time, partly because I was in London and he was working when we had a screening of it. But everyone else had seen it. And we sat backstage and watched it together and we were just like, holy shit, once we'd (laughs) seen it. And then we got to go out and like answer questions about it. And it was so, I don't know, it just felt so good because it was like everyone's here to see it. And it's fantastic. And I get to go out and answer questions about something that I thought was going to be really good, but it definitely is good from watching it. So, um, yeah, I, I watched it for the first time with, I don't know if everyone was fans. There was definitely a lot of, you know, journalists there and stuff, but I got to watch it with everyone who watched it at Comic-Con, which was awesome. And it was my first Comic-Con as well. So it was great. And if this uh, maybe translates a little bit to the set as well, were there some moments on the set where you just really got lost in the atmosphere of it all, where you were sucked into the story, a particular set piece, or maybe a dialogue that you had? Um, the have you? I'm guessing you've seen episodes one to four. The interrogation scene in episode three, I got lost in that, but um, mostly because Greg Brick is so terrifying as Lopez. <laughs> And I remember not, like, really having to put on too much of being completely, like, terrified that trying to, you know, be brave at the same time because he terrified me. So I remember that scene, being on that set and being in that room was great. And also, but like, all of the sets, like, a lot of them, you know, all the kind of really cool stuff at the end was added on by the effect that a lot of the sets were practical and they just made the the transition into the characters and into that team of when we're in the night and stuff so awesome and so much easier and I love that about it it was just it made my job so much easier the sets were incredible right now obviously there's a lot of action in the show and you've got an extensive career as a dancer so i guess does the physicality of that art form help you with the action sequences which obviously includes wire work and includes a lot of choreographed steps yeah i mean it massively helps i've i mean to be honest like actually in this show like most of the stuff that i've done that's been action based has been wire work and it helps because with all the zero-G stuff, really, you know, we have to look like we're floating, but we're hanging by our privates in the air on a wire, and it's not that much fun, but we still have to make it look like we're floating and make it look elegant. So I think with having a choreographer there and, and him talking us through stuff, it was definitely easy for me to take that kind of direction, but it's very different to learning sets and executing them. Like, it's a very different discipline. So... 
it helped me in some ways for sure. But then in some ways I was just kind of like with everyone else because I hadn't done that much wire work before. I'd only done a little bit. So for sure it helps with me whenever I get into the physicality of the character, to be honest. And with Naomi, she's very pulled up and tall and holds herself with an air of, I don't know, like majesticness, if that's a word. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, it's like to play with physicality of characters, whatever character I'm playing, my dance background definitely helps with that, sure. Well, we're really looking forward to seeing more of your character in season one. Uh, this podcast episode will be coming out right after everyone has seen episode five. So I yeah. can't, can't wait to see what happens in that one. So we have a little time to wait. <laughs> but thanks so I much mean, for joining us. You've all got to wait. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. The, the episodes just get better and better. And I can't wait for you all to see it. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. What a great interview that was. I was very uh, happy that she shared so many great details about her character and the show. If you want to follow Dominique Tipper on Twitter, by the way, she's Miss Tipper, except you substitute fives for the double S in Miss. And she's also Miss Tipper on Instagram. Definitely worth a follow. All right. And Mike, in our final segment, we're going to take a look at something that's basically a relatively recent phenomenon, and that is binge watching. And with networks like Netflix, Amazon, uh, even Hulu, creating their own shows and then making that decision to make the entire season available at the same time. It's really shifted the way a lot of people watch television and I'm not sure it's for the better. So that's one of the things we'll talk about. Some aspects of it, I think are extremely unique and, and have changed the way we watch television in a positive way, but sometimes it is detrimental, like you said, and it, has a long history that actually predates the Netflix era, at least from my standpoint. How about you? Well, I mean, for me, Star Trek was one of the first, if not the first sci-fi series that was released on VHS tape in 88, 89, 90 in that era. Now, I certainly didn't purchase those, but what I did at the time was it would I would record each episode and I would keep track of which tape had which episodes And then I would basically do a rewatch starting season one in the summers when I had a chance. And then I did the same thing with the X-Files and would binge watch during the summer when I had time to do it. Yeah, as teachers. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, X-Files was the first one I saw on FX where it was so unique. What they did is they aired each episode in the order it was originally aired every night one time and i remember me and my roommate at the time were able to catch up on x-files that way and later on i actually started going to blockbuster at the time and would get the series on dvd because you could get actually the entire season i did the sopranos that way i did buffy and angel that way just in time for firefly to come out and i saw that one live but you know those were times when even netflix was starting out as the delivery service where you would get dvds in the mail And I did quite a bit of binge watching that way, too, even before Netflix was a streaming service. Right. Uh, But let's fast forward to 2013 and you've got House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, which obviously are not sci-fi shows, but they're really the first two shows that were made available for binge watching. Yeah, I remember when House of Cards season two, I think it was when it came out, I realized, wait a minute. 
You mean you're just going to be able to watch them all at once? Where's the fun in that? You can't dole them out one at a time? Right. And, and therein lies the problem for me. I, I mean, look, we are a sci-fi podcast. And I think we are also a podcast that's going to be about smart sci-fi. And if you sit there and watch one after the other, after the other, after the other, you don't even have time to take in what it is you've seen. I mean, how do you have time to ask all of these fundamental pointed questions about what you've just seen if you're just moving on to the next episode? I get it. We're a society that we want it and we want it now. (laughs) But sometimes that's not a good thing. Yeah. Well, especially as podcasters, we like to analyze the episode before we move on to the next one. (laughs) And uh, I know that's not for everybody. That's how we consume our television. But some of these shows have a lot of depth that are going to get missed, even if you're not someone to overanalyze things. Now, Dave, there is one example that I think worked really well in a very specific way. And that was last year's season one of Sense8. They actually gave that show 12 episodes dropped all at once. And because it was directed by the Wachowskis, who are film directors, and it was a very cinematic style that they kind of did in a very unique style, I felt like that was a 12-hour movie, and it needed to be binged in order to bring it all together. Did it, you make it through all 12? I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, I had to, because I was reviewing it for Den of Geek. Uh, <laughs> but, there you go. You, you gave yourself away. No, I really enjoyed it. Oh, okay. I, know that, I know that show was not for everyone. But it was an example of a show that pretty much benefited from binging because it wasn't really a TV show. It was a 12-hour movie. (laughs) Let's be honest. Yeah. Obviously, Jessica Jones and Daredevil are are two recent offerings. And while I didn't really care for Daredevil and consequently didn't binge it, Jessica Jones, I did really enjoy the first episode. I just haven't had time to watch it. But again, I think you're getting the idea here. I'm not a binge watcher. If I watch three episodes back to back, that's unusual. And it's usually because of something I'm doing podcast related rather than something that I just have to see. Right. And I think in some cases, Daredevil and Jessica Jones, because they're darker, you can only take so much (laughs) before you just feel down in the dumps. Yeah. Good point. Uh, What about Man in the High Castle? Well, okay. Now that, uh, that one I did binge watch, I had the opportunity while my family was away and playing bachelor a little bit (laughs) where I was able to binge watch, I think half of it. I think I did six episodes in one night and I liked it, but I don't know that it was necessary. And so it was really my first taste of binging in the new era was man in the high castle. And I did have that hunger to see what happened next. Right. And then of course there was H plus remember H plus. Oh, yes. I mean, you had to binge watch that because the episodes were, what, like six, seven minutes at most? And that's kind of like Blood and Chrome for Battlestar Galactica. Right. Because the episodes were so short, you could do that. But that's more of a YouTube release type of thing than it is a Netflix, Amazon original series type thing. So, yeah, there is definitely a spectrum and they're playing with the format. They're figuring it out. But, yeah, I'd be interested to, to know how many people out there are missing key details because of the binge and how many people would be just as happy for it to have been doled out one week at a time. Right. And I guess on the one hand, you know, maybe people that want to just sit down, take a day off from work, watch all 10, 12, 13 episodes of a particular show, and then perhaps tune into their favorite podcast about that show 
and then have the details filled in that way. And I, I certainly get that approach. It's not for me. I mean, I can't imagine binging Lost, for instance. I can't even imagine podcasting a show that dropped all of its episodes at once. Yeah, that is a, a difficult proposition for sure. And people have done it, but you know, having that week to absorb it and hype it up and talk about it on social media, I think that's all part of the formula. And, and let's not forget social media because you can't do that with a show that you've binged because you don't want to spoil everyone. So there's a spoiler problem with binge watching as well. Well, right. Now, and in fact, we're recording this on January 4th, which is still only a couple weeks removed from the new Star Wars film. And still, I hear a lot of podcasters, especially still talking about, well, I'm, you know, I took down my Facebook page because I didn't want to have <laughs> any spoilers for, you know, I didn't want to ruin it for anybody. And I, and, you know, I get that, but it just, like you said, it just becomes virtually impossible to stay spoiler free these days. So obviously a lot of caveats out there for people who are binge watching. Maybe that's opened your eyes, that discussion to uh, your own habits and, and maybe whether you would want to do it in the future. But there are a lot of other topics that we definitely want to talk about in addition to whatever shows we end up discussing. So, you know, we're thinking of, of different topics out there, like the resurgence of the sci-fi network as an actual network showing science fiction <laughs> and just everything that's out there with the new space shows that are coming up and finding uh, our enthusiasm for the shows like The Expanse that are out there. So there's a lot of different topics that we might bring up in our bonus content that, that we can talk about. Well, well, and one that is really fascinating to me is the AI interpretation on television. You know, I mean, I mean, we certainly saw back in the day Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles. But, you know, now we, we had shows like Extant, Humans, Dark Matter, Andromeda, obviously an older show, Star Trek Next Generation. I mean, the, the, oh, you just talked about shows that have androids, yeah. which I think is really an interesting way to depict the, the AI aspect. So, yeah, tons of things we can explore. So hopefully you'll join us each month as we discuss the shows that are out there, the unsung heroes on television and some uh, topics of interest. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We certainly hope you enjoyed the discussion tonight. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in February, we'll be discussing the X-Files, the new one. Yeah. And we've been thinking about doing the CW show, The 100, which we both love. I think it's one of the smartest shows on currently. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics, especially our little bonus topic there at the end of the podcast. So if you'd like to send us some feedback, just email scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.